Welcome back to the series on salvation, precisely the episodes on love. And if you are listening right now, this is the beginning of part two. So go back and listen to part one first. But here's part two. In part one, we talked about how we are judged. And then we talked about God's love poured out into our hearts so that we would better love. And that's what we're going to be judged on. And then this episode, we're going to dive into why love. And we're going to even get into the parts of why sin is contrary to love. And uh, and then we're going to get into the very end of it of learning for, for each other from misunderstandings of what the church teaches, both from a Catholic and Protestant perspective, which I both come from, and see and have experienced myself all those misunderstandings of what the church actually teaches and the truth of the gospel. And that'll conclude our episodes on love, but there will be a third part of these episodes on love that just this third part is really just a more full in scope of the totality of the New Testament of what it speaks of when of how we're judged and to be transformed by God's love so that we would love more like him. And so to receive his love, to receive his strength, to receive his wisdom, which is Christ crucified. And so marking myself with the benchmark of Jesus. And so based on that, what, like with in the relationship of love, which is an action, which is love crucified like Jesus, then it shows that love is not mere feelings. Love can be demanding and that's a gift of God. And so when others say, or even when I used to say, well, I love Jesus. I don't need a church. I don't need all the rules. I don't need all this stuff. No, the rules come from Jesus himself because Jesus is love. And so everything is rooted in love. Love transforms everything and love really does fulfill all things. Because think of the example of of a child. And this is what Christ is calling us to be. The example of a child who loves his parents. If he loves his parents truly, he will honor them and therefore fulfill the written law, right? So in the example of a child and his parents, the parents love the child, so they give the child rules. But the child loves the parents, so he follows the rules. And so love transforms by not just looking at a list of rules of what to do and what not to do and just making sure I check the box. No, that is the written law, and that's not being based on love. That's just going based off of rules. But love actually fulfills all those things. I do all those things because precisely I love, and yet it's at an elevated level because I go above and beyond. And this is what Christ is precisely doing in his entire ministry in the new covenant, he elevates the old covenant written on on tablets and, and the, the law where I look at do's and don'ts and I go off the list. No, I go based off of love, which, which it includes me doing all of those things, but elevates it to another level because the love of God, the very spirit of God has been poured out into our hearts so that we'd be transformed by the divine love. So it's nev- never just checking off a, of things of do's and don'ts, but it's actually fulfilling all of it and going above and beyond by true authentic love of God and neighbor. So Christ's message to the apostles is not an easy one. He tells them that we that we must deny ourselves, carry crosses, which were instruments of torture in the first century. So any disciple hearing that in the first century said, okay, he's telling me to carry a instrument of torture. Okay. And then he says, love him above all others. He even uses the word hate others compared to our love for him. He says that we will be persecuted. And in that persecution, he tells us to have joy and to endure and to proclaim Christ and to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Are you kidding me? (laughs) He tells us all these things. And that is so not a life that anybody sounds, if somebody else told me that I probably wouldn't follow them. Right. 
be tough to do. He tells us to live holy, to live the Beatitudes, to enter through the narrow gate, to love like he did, to lay down one's life for their friends. And then not only friends, Christ died when we were yet sinners. So, and he tells us to walk in his footsteps. These are not easy, but it's love that transforms all of these things. So Jesus is already saying that love is demanding. To love him is demanding because he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And First John says that if you love Jesus, keeping his commandments is loving God. Keeping Christ's commandments is loving God. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you even see that from the in the Old Testament, the prophet saying that God doesn't even want the sacrifices anymore because he just wants your hearts Turn towards God. He said, I will reject your sacrifices day and night. Your sacrifices are always before me, but your hearts you will not. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. And this is the full revelation in Jesus that our hearts are supposed to be transformed into the sonship of Jesus, right? So love is the willing, the good of the other. Love in the culture says love is love. It's based on feeling. So it could change and it's a passive and dismissive love. But true love is an action, with God is to do his will, Matthew seven twenty one, And that love as an action to others, it's to will their good so that they would know the truth, to have compassion, to suffer with them, just as Jesus proclaimed the truth and suffered with us in a total real sense. And to share the, the truth and so that people would come to know the truth, who is Christ himself. Truth is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. So it's leading people to Jesus. Ultimately, that is true love. And I actually, just the other day, the Lord showed me this, that a lot of times when we correct people, and this is another thing that we need to check our intentions, because Jesus says, judge with right judgment. He does not say, do not judge, but he says, take the log of your eyes, take out the log out of your eye so that you can see the speck in the other person's eye. So he tells us to judge and to call each other, right? Because St. Peter even says that, or James even says at the end that correcting a brother covers a multitude of sins. St. Peter says, uh, loving, love covers a multitude of sins. So he says, judge with right judgment, judge with right judgment. But when we call out our brothers, our sisters, when we carry out what, what Jesus says in Matthew 18 to, to go and tell the, to your brother to his sin, to him and to him alone, or to the two or three witnesses before you go to the church. So when you do that, are we actually doing it out of love? I think a lot of times when we correct people, we're actually correcting them, myself included. We're correcting them so that they can be the person that we want them to be so that we can love them easier and then call and then we can just say, yeah, I I really did love that person. No, I made them a person that I wanted them to be so that I could love them better. I want them, them to have all the characteristics that I want to have. So I actually impressed my insecurities upon this person to make them to the person that I desire them to be so that I can love them easier. But that is not love and that is foreign to the love of Jesus. Jesus came. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He had fellowship. He dined with prostitutes, with tax, tax collectors, with uh, thieves and we and lepers and unclean people, all these people. And dining in, in the Middle East, even still today, but especially during that time, dinner, table fellowship was meaning that you're on equal grounds. God himself became flesh, took on all of our sins, all of our burdens. He bore our iniquities. He bore our diseases. And then he actually fellowshiped with people right where they were, right where they were. He, the, the adulterous woman, he met her right where she was. The woman at the well, he met her right where he was, where she was. And Jesus, from that love of encountering the person as they are right there and loving them, dying for them, it was that love that transformed them so that 
they could become the person that God made them to be. Not the other way around. Love them exactly where they are, precisely in their brokenness, in their dirtiness, in their sins, to love them authentically with truth and compassion, to love, to become one with them, to bear one's sins even, so that they may become the person that God created them to be, not making them the person so that we can love them better. That's true love. And so true love is loving like Jesus, right? So, and love is not a feeling. If love was a mere, merely a feeling, then that means that our love is fleeting all the time. Our feelings are going in and out all the time. Our affections towards our parents, our spouses, our children, our family, our coworkers, even God himself are fluctuating all the time. If I can say, I love you today, but not to not, I loved you yesterday, I don't love you today just because I don't feel it today. That's not true love. Our feelings are a gift of God because it shows and it impels us and it urges us on to love and it grows our encouragement and all those things. But that is not true love. True love is found actually in those times where we don't feel it. And our culture is decaying because it precisely says that, that everything is down to a feeling. Your truth is based on your feeling. Whatever you desire, whatever you perceive as reality, that's truth. But it also boils even love down to a feeling. And that's what the culture means by love is love, is that if it's just mere consensual uh, feelings of affection and um, I feel comfortable around you and everything in the world, then that's love. But that's not true love. So take, for example, the married man who, after several years, we actually, it's funny, we watched a Turkish soap opera that did just this. Married together for several years. They knew to, knew each other their whole life. And in high school, they were, they were in love with each other. They were high school sweethearts. They were so in love. And then afterwards, for several years, the feelings start floating away. And then this man, he ends up having an affair. And then he convinces himself, he wants to seek a divorce with his wife that he's known his whole life. And he's even become convinced that he actually never loved her in the first place. So he denies, rejects, his feelings doesn't believe even the ones that he had previously. And he uses that, even that current feeling of despair or that current feeling of no affection towards her to rationalize away his feeling of divorcing uh, his wife. So that's what our culture calls love, a feeling. But love is not merely a feeling. Although feelings are great, that is typically one of the very first things that's a good sign that you're falling in love with somebody is that the feelings are there. But uh, authentic, eternal, everlasting love, even if you don't believe in God, even if you believe that this is the one life, true love in this life is that, that consistent love to will the good of another. And so love, it can be demanding. And so our inclination as human beings is to focus on the demands part of that statement I just said, that love is demanding. But that just shows us that our weakness and we're not yet perfected in love. Love actually conquers all those demands and covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of struggles, a multitude of crosses. Love conquers all that in Jesus. And we are called to participate in that love. Love is demanding. Yes, Jesus tells us himself, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the ultimate commandment that he tells us is to love one another as he has loved us. And he loved us to the end, even giving himself up on a cross and bearing our sins, the weight of the world on him. And so he's calling us to participate in that. He even tells Peter at the end, that one day you are going to be dragged where you do not want to go. And he's talking about his death that he was going to die for, right? And this is after Peter just denied uh, Jesus. After, again, after him just telling Jesus, I will die with you, Lord. I'll go wherever 
you you will go. I will even die with you. And Jesus says, will you, Peter? <laughs> and then he denies him. And he actually denies him at a fire, right? So the Peter is warming himself with this earthly fire. He want, doesn't want to be known. He doesn't want to proclaim Jesus anymore. He's scared of what Jesus already told him. That he's going to be persecuted and all these things. But he was being on a, a human love, a rejection that that by that fire, he denied Jesus. And then these are the only two times where a fire is in the Gospels. One time where Peter is warming himself at the fire outside of the, the, um, the temple uh, where Jesus was being condemned to death and he denies him. And then again, after Jesus' resurrection, he comes to Peter again, guess what? By a fire. And this fire is di- with divine love in his heart. And he shows Peter that Peter in his humanness is weak, even though he has courageous, brave intentions to even die with Jesus. He can't do it alone. He has to have God's divine love burning within him. And that is the risen Christ. And so he tells him, do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then he tells him what to do. Feed my lambs. Do you, and he t- asks him three times, do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so our love is being called by Christ himself to be elevated, to have divine love burning in our hearts, to be moved by that divine love for our, our brothers and sisters, for each other, and to die for each other as Jesus died for us. And so we're being called into the very life and love of Jesus himself. And just to draw this out in an analogy, I want to this has been my favorite, one of my favorite and most profound revelations of God's love for me is in my beautiful wife. We've been married for eight months and God has revealed so many things. And love, in the context of a spousal relationship, those affections can come and go. And praise God, like I so still have a lot of affections now, but some days they're stronger than the other, right? And so that love um, that spousal imagery, that analogy of marriage, Jesus and uh, St. Paul in Ephesians 5, this is the great um, scripture of God's revelation of Christ crucified as the great mystery of Christ and the church, the head and the body, the bridegroom and his bride. And Paul making that connection that men are supposed to imitate Christ to die for their bride the church, like Jesus died for the church, but we die for our, our bride so that she would be sanctified and holy to present her, her unblemished, unspotted before God, right? So to die for our bride and to submit to Christ and Christ died for the church and submitted to his father to, to sanctify the church, to present us blameless, spotless. And so to that, that great image of marriage is so profound. And so that connection of, in that love, we want to do everything with our spouse. Our life is radically changed. We don't, we don't even want to make a decision, a financial decision. We don't want to make even decisions about dinner, decisions on groceries, decisions on uh, um, anything going on in our lives, let alone the big things. Sometimes we don't even want to like do the small things without the spouse, right? Because our life is radically changed. I want to do everything with my spouse. I always want to be in her presence even when there's minimal affection. But because the marital covenant is so strong, is so strong, the grace in that is so powerful and profound because it shows that love is not just a one-time thing. It's one one thing to make a promise at the altar, uh, at the altar. It's another to live and to walk and to keep that promise. So compared to a wedding, it would be like me saying, yes, I do. And then just leaving and going out to a bar and doing whatever I want. Well, people would say, no, you're not doing your duties as a husband, right? Well, 
that's exactly what we are called to in the life of God. When I say I do, it's enough to begin marriage, but it's not enough to grow in that grace and that love and that promise that we that we made. And it's the same with the discipleship with the true bridegroom, Jesus. In baptism, we have been wedded to him in a spiritual sense. And then we actually participate in that love in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we participate in that love. And so much like Jesus, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride, as we already participate in that and are called to live in that in eternity, as we continue per- being perfected in love here in this life, so too with the with marriage here in this life, that we are called to participate in that eternal love right now with our spouses. And so um, this is why it's not just a mere feeling. Feelings are great and they're such a gift to have, but they do not inform us. And this is part of the original fall because reason still is there, right? We're still created in God's image, but our uh, we have a distorted um, strength about us. We have a weakness about us that doesn't, we don't comprehend things quite right anymore. <laughs> and that's why reason is so powerful. But love of God confirms all that and, and, and calls us on to that. So, in the marital context, we want to do everything together and specifically want to go through hard things together. Um, and many times throughout life, I can guarantee most people can can uh, can share this and can share this experience or, or have had this before. And whether it's in sports or in relationships, if there's something tough going on, like let's say a sports team is, is super competitive and they're moving up um, and it's getting really competitive, Everybody all of a sudden, because of that that burden, because of that that cross that they they have together, they their bond is crazy. When friends go through really tough times together, their bond is like never before. When when relationships go through tough di- tough times together, faithfully together, bearing the cross together, they bond like never before. And just like Jesus, he goes to the cross with us, literally in the cross and because of that cross and it's love that compels and destroys and and uh, conquers anything that can separate us because nothing can separate us from the love of God. So it's because of that cross now that Jesus took that first cup of suffering that he drank for us, we don't have to fear suffering. Suffering is actually uh, now a gift because we're more united with our bridegroom, Jesus. We become even more close to him as we become faithful, right? And that, so we can see this in all relationships. Anytime where things are tough and people are faithful to it and they do it together, their relationship is super, super strong. So suffering can unite and prune us. But when there's something like there's a cross or a burden and someone's unfaithful, that relationship can be really torn apart. And that's where it's like sin, right? Unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to a promise, unfaithfulness to a relationship, a, a, a burden, or just a mutual respect for, for somebody else or upholding their end of the bargain. When you uphold that, that relationship is distorted and hurt, right? And it has to be united again. But then in those cases where there is no cross, or no burden, and people are just like, it's just based on feelings and it's just come and go and there's really nothing to move forward in. there's nothing to do together. Their relationship is a lot of times weakening. So that cross and that burden can be a gift in a sense, not for the cross and the burden of itself. That's not the gift. But in that gift, we are more and more united to our bridegroom, Jesus, when we remain faithful. And that goes for us and each other in relationships. And the only thing that can get us through that is love. The only thing that can get us through that is love. And that's why 
for many, many, many reasons. We're going to have a whole episode on this. Why we have crucifixes and not just crosses. Because the cross without Christ is a instrument of torture and a burden without a savior. Let me say that again. The cross without Christ is just a burden without a savior. So the cross without Christ is a burden without a savior. A cro- Christ without cross is a man without a mission. And in marriage or in any relationships, when I look at a cross, I see a burden I need to carry. But when I see the crucifix in my house, <laughs> I see the love which I am loved with and I am called to love like that where all virtue is met. You want to be patient? Am I loving like that? Do I want to be gentle, consoling? Do I want to be gracious, forgiving? Do I want to be... Uh, you know, slow to speak and great to listen. Do I look like that? Am I crucified with Jesus on the cross? That is where all virtues are met. Um, when I was a Protestant, and I still have uh, Protestant friends today, where even before this whole quarantine thing, you know, they're out, we were out or they were out late on Saturday night and they were just tired. So they would, we, they, I used to watch just church in bed. You know, I can just pop open my TV and hear the pastor talk, right? Or even outside of the context of going out the night before anything like that. This actually just came to me a few weeks ago when I was walking into a Saturday evening mass with a ton of things to to do. I need to get a lot of things done. I was thinking back again, like when I was Protestant and those friends of mine who were Protestant or who are Protestant, when they were out the late night before or just because they're busy or they had that feeling of being extra tired the next day or something, they would, we would just stay home and maybe listen to the sermon in bed, right? And this is an example of when we love ourselves more than God because we should have our entire lives oriented to God's way and not want God to do it our way because that's not true love. God has already revealed his love and how he wants to communicate that love to us and how he wants us to participate in that love. That would be like my wife telling me how she wants to be loved and then just laying in bed and be like, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm a little too tired right now. No, love urges us on to compels us to orient our whole lives. If it is being too tired, I'm going to make the sacrifice and get up because I need my true bridegroom. I need the love of my life. I need God. So I'm going to go and I'm going to show him how much I love him. (laughs) If I'm out the night before, well, maybe we need to change our priorities of, you know, maybe I should get to bed early. Maybe I should stop drinking so much. Maybe I should do any of these things so that I can change, so that I can truly love God. So the key again is love, not just mere belief or trust, but to get to know God in such a way. He doesn't say just believe me or trust me. All those are great. Those are good things. That is the beginning. But he says, get to know me in such a way that your heart burns for me, that you're, you love me more than anything. You are willing to separate yourself, to leave your comforts, to be living in pover- poverty even, to, li- to even leave if you were called to leave your whole family. Would you be okay? Does your heart burn for Jesus more than anybody else or anything else? That is the, lo- the very love of God that Christ is calling us to. So faith says, I'm not afraid. But love says, I'm excited. Faith says, I can walk forward confidently knowing I'm in his hands. But love brings me joy in that. Brings me joy in that. This is where St. Paul can, we can say with St. Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings. And where he says, rejoice always. It's love that does that. It's love that does that. Love transforms and is the key to everything. When I was just doing, on a spiritual sense, 
doing uh, St. Ignatius's Discernment of Spirits, this 14 rules. I'm reading a book by Father Timothy Gallagher. And he talks about how in spiritual consolation, when we feel those affections of God, we need to have humility, make ourselves small and realize that we can never do anything without God. And then when spiritual desolation, when we have done no, maybe nothing wrong, or maybe we have, but if we're, we just don't feel God's love, we feel cranky, ornery, we don't feel his presence, we feel like we can't get any peace in prayer, we're distracted or anything like that, we're discouraged. Spiritual desolation, we're called to have trust. So humility and spiritual consolation and trust and spiritual desolation. Love leads through all of that. It's love. It's love that tells me to be humble. It's love that tells me to be, to be trusting right now. Love fulfills all things. St. Francis de Sales said, we must begin with love, continue with love, and end with love. When a religious sister, and I read this in uh, I Believe in Love, and it's a retreat based on the spiritual exercises of St. Therese of Lisieux. It is unbelievable. But this is, and it just blew my mind because I, like, Anybody, and God's, God says this in scripture himself, you know, like God gives grace to the humble, to become humble, to humble yourselves, blessed are the meek, and to be humble, right? Those are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so to be humble is not to say, no, I'm not all those things, those good things that anybody's saying about yourself at that time. It is just acknowledging the truth. You are God and I am not. It's being that, that good thief on the cross, really. I'm a thief, Lord. I deserve this. You don't. You are God. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is humility. So, and I always thought like, and I really did think this way. I was like, okay, if I need to love better, I need to be more humble. So I'm going to humble my way to love. And then I was reading this book, I Believe in Love. It's actually on, my, on our honeymoon. And this is what it says. When a religious sister had told St. Francis de Sales, I wish to acquire love through humility. St. Francis de Sales replied, and I wish to acquire humility through love. And that's it. That is That just shows everything. Because I was thinking, if I'm humble, then I'll be patient, I'll be kind, I'll be uplifting towards other people and not think of myself and all those things. But truly, I'm humble when I'm loving great. That's another benchmark. And that is so beautiful. We have to think of the cross. Surely Christ humbled himself but he went there out of love, which love entails humility, right? So when in Philippians it says, Christ humbled himself even to death on a cross. Yes, he humbled himself, but it was love that brought him there. It was the love of God that brought him there. And this is why love is so unbelievable and, and God's love is so profound. And this is the love that he's calling us to, to participate in that. It's loves God. It's we love God because he loved us first. It's grace and we're saved and judged by love. And so on this topic of love, I figured this is actually a great uh, podcast episode to talk about sin because a lot of, of Christians will say, once saved, always saved, or nothing. I was reading this book. It was this uh, this Protestant who converted to Catholicism. He was saying that when he was evangelizing, him and his friend, they would so sharply proclaim when people would say the Lord's prayer or the the sinner's prayer that they were fully saved and they would even say ask people as a follow-up question what so so now that you accepted Jesus as your savior nothing can separate you from his love you are saved for sure and they would even test test them by saying he remembers this one account where it hit him like what we are doing is just so not biblical <laughs> and so not Christ-like he says he asked this old this, his friend asked this woman even if you went out and murdered, would you be saved? And she was like, 
no. And she's like, he's like, yes, you would be saved even if you murdered. And so that's so not biblical and it's so not what Christ calls us to, what the apostles call us to. They call us to love because that's what we're going to be judged on. And we heard that at the very beginning of this going through all that, that. But, and why is sin so bad? Sin separates us from God because God is love. And sin, because sin is contrary to love, to love of God and love of neighbor. Sin is contrary to love. That's why in each of the places where a list of sins is listed, it's a warning that they won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because sin contradicts love it's a, or it's a fake love. And this is why oftentimes, especially in the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament, sin is synonymous with adultery because adultery is fake love. And that's what sin is. Sin is a fake love oftentimes. Sometimes it can be actually just deranged things. But oftentimes, it's this promise that you're going to feel good for this moment, but then it passes away and it's empty. It's fake love. And that's not what God wants for you. That's not what God wants for me. That's not what God wants for his people. He calls us to participate in love. And sin is directly contrary to that, which is why it's called in the Old Testament, sin is synonymous with adultery because it's fake love. It's contracepted love. We say it's love, but it's actually not love at all. And we see in several times all throughout the New Testament, a warning first and foremost against immorality, sin, to walk, to be walking in darkness or not walking in the truth of the apostles and Jesus and walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. This is all throughout the New Testament, but just a few where it's very, very explicit and there are sins that people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So when I said earlier that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, a lot of people will quote that and say, well, there it is, nothing, even sin. But notice when, when St. Paul says that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, he lists nearly everything except sin. And in the whole context, he's talking about persecution, sufferings, tribulation, and all those things that come with following of Jesus, right? So even in Acts 14, 22, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's expected. Jesus talks about being persecuted all the time. It shouldn't be a surprise. And then in Philippians 1, 29, he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so suffering is expected, but sin is not expected at all. It's actually contrary to the kingdom of heaven. And so just to quote it really quick, in Romans 8, starting in uh, verses 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And just to note right there, that quote was going back, referencing back to Psalm 44, 22, and it's, he's, St. Paul is calling us lambs and we are participating in the one true lamb of God. So we sacrifice ourselves as temples of the living God in Christ Jesus for our spiritual sacrifice, our spiritual worship, right? So we offer ourselves in sacrifice for the salvation of others. But then he continues in verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. But guess what? Sin does. And sin comes from our own free will. We choose to participate in sin, which is darkness. <laughs> so Jesus in the Gospels is very clear. 
those who do evil or teach others to do so are cut off and thrown into eternal fire at judgment. So sin is contrary to Jesus. And just to show in the book of Revelation, when he's talking about judgment and the second coming, he even says in Revelation 21, 27, he says, nothing unclean shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, nor anyone who practices a practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so that's Jesus, and sin is contrary to Jesus, the life and love of God. St. Paul, we're going to read three verses, starting in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's very clear. Sins are cut off from the kingdom of God. So in the Greek word for immoral literally means fornicators. And then homosexuals, in the Greek, it means effeminate nor sodomites. So the apostles are all condemning and the church has always condemned all of these acts. That's not to say those who have uh, uh, tendencies or feelings, right? And I just want to be clear because this is one of the places where he lists uh, homosexuals. He is not condemning people with tendencies or feelings. He is condemning these acts, these behaviors, not the feelings themselves, the behaviors, the people who actually participate in those actions that are contrary to the love of God that has been revealed naturally and through and through divine uh, revelation in Jesus Christ because it's fake love again, right? And then jumping again to St. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, St. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are plain, immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are sins that are contrary to the love of God and we will be judged based on our actions and settling for fake love. And again, this is the, these are all written to Christian communities. He's warning them. And then jumping to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 5, ending in verse 11, St. Paul says, Be sure of this, that no immoral or impure man or one who is covetous, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found all in all that is good and right and true. And try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So again, sin is contrary to the kingdom, contrary to Jesus, contrary to the apostles, contrary to the church, and contrary to the very love of God and the life that he offers us. So uh, we are called to participate in God's love with Jesus as our benchmark and let the bridegroom purify us and to walk in the spirit and not of the flesh. But good news is that we participate in God's love of salvation. St. Paul says, I have become all things for all men that I may save some. And I f- he fills up in his body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, which is for his body, the church, to build it up and to become co-laborers with Christ, to save people. And James, at the very, the very two last verses of his epistle, James 5, starting in 19, he says, 
My brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And St. Peter says nearly the same thing in First uh, Peter 4, 8. Above all, hold unfailing your love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. So in short, sin will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven because sin is contrary to love, which is the very nature of God that we are called to participate in. So to conclude all of this, we are saved by grace through faith, working itself out in love. So if somebody were to ask you, are you saved by faith or by works? And you would say, in short, love. And for a more complete answer, I'm saved by grace, the unmerited gift of God. And what he gives me is his very self, which is the very essence of him, which is love. God is love. And by faith, I have access to that love. And he will judge me not based on what I merely do or don't do, but based on how I love. And to wrap up this whole thing, I want to take... Uh, two extremes that I think both Catholics and Protestants could learn, learn from out of all this. And these two extremes primarily come from a misunderstanding of what the Catholic Church actually teaches. And this bo- is both within uh, the Catholic Church. Some Catholics uh, believe the wrong thing. And then also Protestants get the wrong impression of what Catholics believe, probably, probably because of how Catholics act sometimes. So, um, So the two extremes, one extreme is that Catholics either get accused of or some Catholics may believe that just because they're a member of the Catholic Church and they receive the sacraments and they check the box, that they're saved, they're good to go, they don't need to do anything else, they're good, they're in the kingdom. Then the other extreme is the side of, well, I don't need the church. I don't need anything. All I need is that personal relationship with Jesus and I have the Bible. And those are certainly true and good and beautiful things, but both of those are wrong because Jesus gave us both and we are first and foremost called to love. And so the church, uh, so on the Catholic side, Catholics may get accused or some people actually may believe that just receiving the sacraments and being Catholic is uh, sufficient enough to be saved. Like I check all the boxes, I received the sacraments, I'm good to go. I didn't kill anybody my whole life, I'm good. So the church does not teach that. It's love. The church teaches that we are saved by love and it's a personal relationship and you cannot love somebody that you do not know. And so the church, and this actually uh, I clear clarified for me like during this, during all this quarantine stuff when we are not, do not have access to the sacraments and couldn't receive Jesus in the, in the Eucharist, the church actually teaches that someone who does not have, does not receive the sacraments, but has a desire and to love, desire to love and to serve God with their whole hearts and will go wherever the truth, truth leads them, even if they don't know the fullness of the truth in the Catholic Church, but they love God with their whole hearts. That person is actually more to receive the saving graces that God wants to give them than the person who is Catholic and just goes through the motions and just merely receives the sacraments. So Catholics, we need to wake up. We are called by our Lord and Savior and by the church herself to be loved and to love, to fulfill that second and greatest commandment, to fulfill the whole law, which is fully fulfilled in loving our neighbor as Christ loved us and loving neighbor as ourself, loving God with our whole hearts, to have our hearts transformed by that divine love, to be transformed, to walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh every single day, to choose to be an intentional disciple, to pick up our crosses and carry out of love for Jesus. And I've heard this as well as I became Catholic. And I'm sure it's in Protestant circles as well, but I've definitely heard this as, as a Catholic. Well, 
My faith is really personal and private to me. Jesus never, ever has called anybody into a life of privacy in their faith in the Lord. Yes, it is personal. Christ died for you. Christ died for me. But Christ called every single one of us, gave us a commission statement to go and make disciples of all nations, to go and proclaim the gospel to every living living creature. So it is not private. It is personal. We each have a commission statement to be salt and light to the earth, to do good works that... Christ prepared for us, as Ephesians 2.10 says, so that people would come and glorify our Heavenly Father, so people would come to know Jesus, that we would do the works that Jesus said we're going to do greater works than he does. So this is a whole lifestyle, and this is what the Catholic Church teaches. And then on the other extreme is on, typically on this non-Catholic side, is that it's merely a personal relationship. But that's also wrong because Christ gave us the church to be a part of, to be a part of a body, to live in a kingdom so we know, so that we know the truth because the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And he gave us the sacraments for the very reason to be filled with his divine love and to encounter that love here in the flesh. That incarnated, incarnated faith continues in the church and in the sacraments and precisely in the Eucharist that Christ gave for us to be transformed. He literally gives us his very heart in the Eucharist. So any Protestant coming into the Catholic Church, as I found and as every single uh, uh, Protestant convert has found, you know, those truly following Jesus because out of sheer love of him, such as the 1,200 Protestant pastors who became Catholic since the beginning of EWTN, they find that the Catholic Church is not less. It's more because they already come with that deep love and personal relationship with Jesus. And now they come into the more because they come into the full union of Christ's body, the church that he established. And their hearts become more and more inflamed in that very divine love of Christ because we are filled with his divine love in the sacraments. We know we're forgiven because he gave us a sacrament of confession. We know that he gives us his very heart so that we can have life within us, as Jesus says in John 6. So it is a both and. We need to have a personal relationship and to receive and accept the very gift that God has given us in the church that has the fullness of truth. So, and another thing on that side is that I actually find... Protestant theology can come across as very scrupulous. Now, not scrupulous in the sense of, of like, I need to purify my life, but actually scrupulous in that, um, how do you know that anybody's, that who, how do you know if anybody's saved? Because everybody will argue on how, precisely how you are saved. And nobody can come to an agreement with it. Some people will claim that they have metaphysical certainty that, that if they died right now, they're going straight to heaven. But that goes against what, uh, what scripture says is that, we can we can deceive ourselves, as Jesus says in Matthew seven, and Saint Paul even said that I can I do not find myself acquitted because God is His judge. He He's not aware of any sins, but He therefore doesn't stand acquitted. And He even says that He pummels His body, so therefore He doesn't become disqualified. So that's Saint Paul saying. So nobody knows from metaphysical certainty that they are saved because if they knew that they were saved, then that would make them God. But God is our judge. We are not. <laughs> so. And he's going to judge us based on our conscience, what we know, what we know to be true, and to choose truth and to love God and love neighbor and to serve with with what he has given us, right? To be that good and faithful steward uh, of the gifts that he has given us. And on this other side, all these 
things that people argue about, like, do you need to say this? Do you need to do that? That nobody knows for certain in the Protestant community because everybody interprets their own theology. Everybody's their own pope, essentially. Everybody's their own authority to interpret scripture. But scripture was never intended to be that way. And so people can become really scrupulous because then on the flip side, I think I would actually be more anxious because I don't know for sure. Like, did Jesus give us baptism or not? Well, his church says they did. Did Jesus actually, is he actually in the Eucharist to give us life, to give us life from his very body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist? The church for 2,000 years has said he, he did. So I know for sure how I can be saved. And now I'm called to participate in that love that God gave me in the sacraments, in the very life of the church, which is a perpetual uh, of giving of Christ on, on the cross, his divine love poured out into us, right? So, and further, you know, just the whole development of the salvation in the Protestant church. It started out by faith alone. This is what Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers proclaimed. But they, they, it was given on the grounds of a trust, you know, a life change. But now it's changed into even a mere faith or intellectual consent, which has even further morphed into in the 1800s out of fundamentalism that all you need to say is that I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior and you're good to go. Once saved, always saved. You even got into, into that mix, right? So, but now, even today, I have heard that there's, not, there's even an argument, if to be saved, you just need to accept Jesus as your Savior and not necessarily your Lord. So this just further shows the bad fruit that comes from division after division after division when people don't have an authoritative voice to proclaim what Jesus is teaching. And that is only found in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that Jesus founded and will have a living voice today and for until Jesus comes back in glory. So, and so again, it continues down that road of relativism within salvation to, and within that, uh, those arguments and everything, you know, even just showing what the argument is now is that maybe you just need to accept Jesus as your Savior, not necessarily as your Lord. But that further shows that there's relativism even within theology and salvation. And it shows that they want to do it to the lowest bar or path of least resistance, which is completely missing and straight up missing loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and neighbor as yourself, right? Because we're no longer loving when we're just counting Mm, all I need to do is this. I'm not truly loving my wife if I'm just saying, mm, all I really need to do today is not piss her off. <laughs> I need, I'm need. i called to love. And being called to love is accepting, as Catholics do, as Catholics are called to do, is accept Jesus as both Lord and Savior. He is our Savior. Apart from him, we can do nothing. He is the Savior of us all in every circumstance. We hold all thoughts captive to Christ. He transforms us. But he is our Lord as well, because uh, by actually a full lifestyle, Lord means that he's over all. Lord in the in the kingdoms, like we don't understand kingdoms here in the Western culture, but around the time of Jesus, there was the C- there was Caesar who was who was the son of God in Rome, and he com- claimed himself to be divine. And what they called him, Lord, they would call people Lord all the time, is people who had authority over them. So Jesus is our Lord because he's over all and our lives are fully given in obedience to him because he is our Lord precisely. And Savior means walking in step with him constantly because how can you acclaim somebody as your Savior if you don't actually reach out and call out to him as one who needs saving? It's a daily choice and a lifestyle. So we're called to be 
under the lordship and under the saving grace of Jesus. And Jesus, the Lord and Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords of our lives, calls us to love like he loves. They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love. And I give you a new commandment to lay down your life for them. So our Lord does not lord it over us like all the other kingdoms of the world do. Our Lord came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we are called to walk in his footsteps. So that is what we are called to do is to love God with our whole hearts, with our whole minds, our whole being, and to love our neighbor as Christ loved, loved us so that we would even lay down our lives for our friends. So ultimately, what is it? We are called to receive love in that eternal divine sonship that we share in, as Christians in Jesus because what he is by nature, we are by grace and we participate in that sonship to receive. That is what it is to be a Christian, to first and foremost, to be a child of God, which means to receive gifts, to receive love by our Abba, our Father. And then we're called to love. So it's one, to receive the gifts that the Lord gives us. And then it's, again, to be transformed by the divine love that transforms us in our brokenness. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we would be transformed by his divine love so that we would be able to participate in the very life of the Trinity, which is a gift of self and perfect love so that we would manifest his kingdom here on earth to reconcile the whole human race so that we could forever and all eternity to participate and to share and to be in perfect communion in that perfect embrace of God's great love. So let's finish this out with a prayer begging for more of the Holy Spirit to be filled with that divine love. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by that same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.